Section 14 of Five Years of My Life, 1894-1899. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Five Years of My Life, 1894-1899 by Alfred Dreyfus. Translated from the French. Section 14. Devil's Island and the Return to France. October 1898-June 1899. In October I received my wife's letters written in August. In them was always expressed the same vague hope. It was impossible for her, in her mutilated and often suppressed correspondence, to strengthen this hope by precise facts. I again renewed my request for a reply to my petitions for revision. On the 27th of October, 1898, while I was still in ignorance of the appeal for revision made by my wife, and of the fact that her appeal had been allowed to come before the Court of Cassation, Supreme Court, to be passed upon by it, I was at last told, You will soon receive a definite answer to the requests for revision which you have sent to the chief magistrate of the nation. I immediately wrote the following letter to my wife. Ile du Salut, October 27, 1898. A few lines to send you a slight echo of my deep affection and the expression of my great tenderness. I have just been informed that I shall soon receive a definite answer to my demands for a revision. I am waiting for it calmly and with confidence never doubting that the reply will be my rehabilitation. Alfred. A few days later, early in November, I received my September mail. In this my wife announced to me that grave events had taken place which I should learn about later, and that she had presented a demand for revision which had been received by the government. This news coincided with the reply which had been given me on the 27th of October. I was still in ignorance of the fact that the request for revision had been transmitted by the government to the Supreme Court, and that the hearing had begun. On the 16th of November, 1898, I received a telegram worded as follows. Cayenne, November 16, 1898 governor to transported convict Dreyfus through the commanding officer at the Ile du Salut. You are informed that the criminal branch of the Supreme Court has declared acceptable in form the application for a revision of your sentence, and has ordered that you be notified of this decision and be invited to set forth your defense. I understood that the hearing on the merits of the case was now to be opened, whereupon I demanded to be put at once into communication with Maitre Demange, my counsel of 1894. Of course I knew nothing of what had been going on during all this time. I still thought the Baudereau to be the one document in the case. I had nothing to add to the plea I had made before the first court-martial, and nothing that would affect the evidence concerning the Baudereau. I was not aware that the date when the Baudereau was received had been changed, thus modifying the hypothesis put forth during the first trial as to the different documents enumerated in the Baudereau. I therefore thought the affair a very simple one, 
limited as at the first court-martial to a discussion concerning handwriting on the twenty eighth of november eighteen ninety eight i was authorized to go about from seven o'clock to eleven in the morning and from two to five in the afternoon within the limits of the fortified camp by this term was meant the enclosure given up to the guards barracks and my tent and surrounded by a low stone wall my walk was really confined to a passageway under the direct rays of the sun winding among the barracks and their outbuildings but i saw again the sea which i had not seen for more than two years i saw again the meagre vegetation of the island my eyes could rest on something beyond the four walls of my prison in december no letter came from my wife none of the letters which she wrote me in october ever reached me i grew impatient and demanded an explanation i asked when the hearing on the merits of the case would open before the supreme court i did not know that the hearing had taken place on the twenty seventh twenty eighth and twenty ninth of october no answer was given me on the twenty eighth of december eighteen ninety eight i received the following letter from my wife paris november twenty second eighteen ninety eight i do not know whether you have received my letters of last month in which i described to you in a general way the steps which we had to take before being able to present formally our demand for revision informing you also of the procedure adopted and the final admission of the application each new success although it made me very happy was poisoned by the thought that you poor unhappy one were in ignorance of the facts and doubtless were beginning to despair finally last week i had the great joy of hearing that the government had sent a cablegram informing you of the admission of our demand for revision fifteen days ago i was apprised of a letter written by you in which it appears you had declared your resolution of writing no more not even to me lucy exasperated at so inexact an interpretation of my thought i at once wrote to the governor of guiana a letter worded very nearly as follows by the letter which i have just received from madame dreyfus i see that she has been acquainted only in part with a letter which i addressed to you last september declaring to you that i should cease my correspondence while awaiting the answer to the request for revision which i had addressed to the chief magistrate of the nation by the communication of only an extract of my letter a distorted idea of my meaning has been given to my dear wife which must have been more than bitter to her it is therefore a bounden duty for him who it is i do not know and do not wish to know who has committed this deed and upon whom the responsibility for it lies to make reparation i learned that the text which had been made known to my wife was a transmission by cable of my letter and that the letter had been cabled erroneously at the same time i wrote my wife the following letter ile du salut december twenty sixth eighteen ninety eight i had had no letters from you for two months a few days ago i received your letter of the twenty second of november if i discontinued my correspondence for a time 
it was because I was waiting for the answer to my demands for revision, and could do nothing more than repeat myself. Since then you must have received numerous letters from me. If my voice had ceased to be heard, it would have been because it was forever silenced, for I have lived only to preserve my honor, to do my duty as I have everywhere and always done it, without fear or favor. Alfred. The news I had received during these last months brought me a blessed solace. I had never despaired. I had never lost faith in the future, convinced as I was from the first day that the truth would be known, that it was impossible for a crime so odious, so utterly foreign to my nature, to remain unpunished. But as I knew nothing of events passing in France, and, on the other hand, saw my situation becoming daily more terrible, being constantly and causelessly insulted, borne down night and day by the elements, the climate, and the inhumanity of my jailers, I had begun to doubt whether I should live to see the final act of the drama. My will was not weakened. It remained as inflexible as ever. But I had moments of passionate despair over the situation in which my wife and children were placed. At last the horizon was brightening. I had glimpses of the approaching end of our martyrdom. My heart was beginning to throw off its crushing burden. I breathed more freely. At the end of December I received the public prosecutor's introductory speech of October 15th before the Supreme Court. It bewildered me. From it I learned of the accusation brought by my brother against Commandant Esterhazy, whom I did not know, of Esterhazy's acquittal, of Henri's forgery, followed by his confession and suicide. But the bearing of these events was dark to me. On the 5th of January, 1899, I was examined by the President of the Court of Appeals of Cayenne, commissioned by the Supreme Court to visit the Ile du Diable and hold an inquiry. Vast was my astonishment at hearing for the first time of my pretended confessions, of that malicious distortion of the words I cried out on the day of the degradation, words which were a protestation, a vehement declaration of my innocence. And then again, the days and months dragged on without my receiving any definite news. I was kept in complete ignorance of the result of the court's investigation. Every month my wife in letters, which as usual reached me after considerable delay, and in telegrams, told of her hopes that the end would soon come. But I could not see it coming. In the last days of February I sent, as was my custom, to prison commandant Daniel, my usual request for extra provisions and a few other necessities for the following month. I received nothing. I had taken a strict resolution from which I never departed, not to complain or to discuss the method of carrying out my sentence, for this would have been to admit the principle of it, a principle I had never admitted. So I said nothing, and got along as best I could during the month of March. At the end of the month, Danielle came to tell me that he had mislaid my demand, 
and begged me to make up another. If he had really mislaid it, he would have known of it when the boat which brought provisions from Cayenne came back. This proceeding of his coincided too exactly with the passage of the loi de décisissement to be a mere coincidence and not the effect of that law. At that time I did not know the dirty work which this man had undertaken, and I learned it only on my return to France. I believed him to be a simple tool, all the more that he always took pains to tell me, I am only an executive agent, and I knew that men are found for every kind of work. Today I have every reason to think that many of his measures were taken on his own initiative, and that the offensive behavior of certain guards was due to him. For my part I knew nothing of the loi de décisissement, and could not understand the length of the investigation. The case seemed to me very simple, since I knew only of the Baudereau. Several times I asked for information. It is superfluous to say that it was never given me. While my will did not weaken during these eight long months, in which I was looking daily and hourly for the decision of the Supreme Court, my physical and cerebral exhaustion grew more pronounced. On Monday, the 5th of June, 1899, half an hour after noon, the chief guard entered my hut precipitately and handed me the following note. Quote, Please let Captain Dreyfus know immediately of this order of the Supreme Court. The court quashes and annuls the sentence pronounced on the 22nd of December, 1894, upon Alfred Dreyfus by the first court-martial of the military government of Paris, and remands the accused party to a court-martial at Rennes, etc. The present decision is to be printed and transcribed on the book of records of the first court-martial of the military government at Paris, on the margin of the annulled sentence. In virtue of this decision, Captain Dreyfus ceases to be subjected to the convict regime. He becomes a simple prisoner under arrest, and is restored to his rank and allowed to resume his uniform. See to it that the prison authorities cancel the commitment and withdraw the prison guard from the Ile du Diable. At the same time, have the prisoner taken in charge by the commandant of the regular troops and replace the guards by a squad of gendarmes, who will mount guard on the Ile du Diable according to the regulations of military prisons. The cruiser Sfex leaves Fort de France today with orders to take the prisoner from the island and bring him back to France. Communicate to Captain Dreyfus the details of this decision and the departure of the Sfex. My joy was boundless, unutterable, at last I was escaping from the cross to which I had been nailed for nearly five years, suffering as bitterly in the martyrdom of my dear ones as in my own. Happiness succeeded the horror of that inexpressible anguish. The day of justice was at last dawning for me. The court's decision terminated everything I thought, and I had not the slightest idea that there remained anything to do but go through some necessary legal formalities. Of my own story, I knew nothing. As I said, I was still back in 1894, with the Bodoro as the only document in the case, 
with the sentence of the court-martial, with that appalling parade of degradation, with the cries of death to the traitor from a deluded people. I believed in the loyalty of General de Boisdefra. I believed in the chief magistrate of the state, Felix Foray. I thought both eager for justice. Thereafter a veil had fallen before my eyes, growing more impenetrable every day. The few facts I had learned during the last month were enigmas to me. I had learned the name of Esterhazy. I had learned of the forgery of Henri and of his suicide. I had had only official relations with the true-hearted Lieutenant Colonel Picard. The grand struggle, undertaken by a few noble minds, inspired by the love of truth, was utterly unknown to me. In the court's decision I had read that my innocence was acknowledged, and that nothing more remained but for the court-martial before which I was to appear to make honorable reparation for a frightful judicial error. On the same afternoon of the 5th of June, I sent the following dispatch to my wife. My heart and soul are with you, with my children, with my friends. I leave Friday. I wait with uncontrollable joy the moment of supreme happiness when I shall hold you in my arms. That evening the squad of gendarmes arrived from Cayenne. I saw my jailers depart. I seemed to walk in a dream, to be emerging from a long and frightful nightmare. I waited with anxiety for the arrival of the Sphex. Thursday evening I saw, far away, the smoke on the horizon, and soon recognized the warship. But it was too late for me to embark that night. Thanks to the kindness of the mayor of Cayenne, I was able to get a suit of clothes, a hat, a little linen, in a word, the bare necessities for the journey. On Friday morning, the ninth of June, at seven o'clock, the prison boat came for me. At last I was to quit that cursed island. Sphex, a deep-draught ship for that harbor, was anchored far away. The prison boat took me out to her, but I had to wait for two hours before they would receive me aboard. The sea was heavy, the boat, a mere cockle-shell, danced dizzily on the big waves of the Atlantic. I was seasick, and so were all the others on board. About ten o'clock the order came to go alongside. I went on board the Sphex, where I was received by the executive officer, who took me to the non-commissioned officer's cabin, which had been specially prepared for me. The window of the cabin had been grated, I think this was the operation which occasioned my long wait in the boat. The glass door was guarded by an armed sentinel. In the evening I knew from the movement of the ship that the Sphex had weighed anchor and was getting into motion. My treatment on board the Sphex was that of an officer under arrest de rigueur. For one hour in the morning and one hour in the evening I was allowed to walk on deck. The rest of the time I was shut up in my cabin. During my stay on board, I preserved constantly the attitude which I had maintained from the beginning, from a feeling of personal dignity. Beyond the needs of service, I spoke to no one. On Sunday the 18th of June, we reached the Cape Verde Islands, where the Sphex cold. We left there Tuesday the 20th. The ship was slow and made not more than eight or nine knots an hour. On the 30th of June we sighted the French coast. 
after nearly five years of martyrdom i was coming back to obtain justice the horrible struggle was almost ended i believed that the people had acknowledged their error i expected to find my dear ones waiting to receive me on landing and to see with them my comrades awaiting me with open arms and tearful eyes that very day i had my first disillusionment end of section fourteen